today, Nate, will preach from Exodus 11:1, and then through 12:32. I will be reading a portion of that, including all of Exodus 11 and Exodus 12, verses 1 through 6 and 21 through 32. Please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, Shall you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now moving to verse 21. Then Moses asked, called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for we passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, 
when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, so the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Nate Himes. I'm one of the elders that currently serves this church. And we have uh, an epic passage this morning. Epic in length. It's a, it's a long passage to read. It's epic in the scope of devastation that we have before us. It's epic in the significance of this passage in the life of the Jewish people and the life of, of people of the Christian faith as well. This final tenth plague is unique among all the, t- all the plagues, as we'll see. There's, in fact, three unique aspects of it that I want to highlight as we begin. And one moment. There we go. Three unique aspects of the final plague. The first, that God himself comes in the midst of the land of Egypt. The second is that the people of Israel must take action to avoid the effects of the plague. And the third is that the pattern of the narrative and the plot and even just the structure of this plague is completely different than the nine plagues we saw before. Because in the middle of it, the flow is broken. Just when we're at the climax of the story and we're introduced to ceremonial law and the inauguration of a memorial feast. And as we see, these three unique aspects help reveal God, the true God, as both a judge and a justifier. The God who judges and the God who saves. Before we move on, Let's pray together. Father, I don't know what's going on in the hearts of the people here today. You know what's going on in their hearts. You know what they need. You know the degree of their faith. You know their objections to you. You know their burdens and their concerns. Lord, right now I pray that you would just use the words that you've put on my heart to speak to everyone here as they uniquely hear. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to know you. We long to know you. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, there's three aspects to this plague that are unique. And the first is that we're going to look at is that Israel has to take action in order to avoid the effect of the plague. They're commanded to take this action. They're they're to select a lamb, a goat or a sheep, 
for each household and kill it, roast it, eat it, and most importantly, smear its blood across their door frames. And by just doing so, we read in chapter 12, verse 13, that the blood shall be a sign for them on the house where they, where they are. And when God sees the blood, he will pass over them. And no plague will befall them to destroy them when he strikes the land of Egypt. And this ceremony, this act, is to be a sign for them. And God says that when he sees it, he will pass over the, them and they, he will not destroy them. He will not kill the firstborn in the home. But if you've been following along the series, this might seem surprising to you because as we saw in the plagues already, especially plagues four through nine, God was already fully capable of making the distinction between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, those who were living in the land of Goshen and those in the city, the main cities of Egypt. So why was a sign needed? God already had the power, again, to tell the locusts where to go, the hail where to go, the darkness where to go. He's certainly powerful enough to dictate where this plague of death goes. First nine plagues were administered by a proxy. So the first thing we see is that they have to take action. And the reason why is the second unique thing, that God himself comes down. Again, the first nine plagues, the plagues are administered by a representative, not God himself. God commands and instructs Moses and Aaron on what the plague's going to be, what to do. He gives Aaron the staff representing his power and authority, and he sends him. And it's Aaron who takes a staff and strikes the water, and strikes the land, causing the plagues to descend. That's not what happens here. Moses and Aaron are absent. We assume that they are taking cover in their home as well. If we look back at the passage in 11.4, the Lord says, About midnight, I will go in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now there's some debate whether it was God himself that carried out the killing of the firstborn, or a destroyer, or an angel of death. There is a reference to the destroyer later later in the passage. But whether or not it was this angel of death or something else, the passage is still clear that God himself comes in their midst, and he's the one taking responsibility for it. In chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am the I am. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's clear. God is doing this. God is passing through. God is striking. And this is a serious threat. Why is it a threat to Israel, though? Right? We can understand God is coming to bring judgment against the Egyptians. They've been oppressing his people for hundreds of years. The beginning of Exodus, he orders the killing of all the male babies that are being born. And God has given him opportunity after opportunity to release his people. So we understand why 
Pharaoh and why Egypt have something to be concerned about. But why is this a threat to Israel? The answer is because God is a holy God. None can endure his presence unless they too are holy. All who are in the presence of a holy God are found to be and are found to be unholy will be judged. And if you recall back to chapter 13, we've already seen this theme being developed. When Moses encounters God in the wilderness, he's walking through the land of Midian, coming near Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and he sees the bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And his attention is drawn to it, and he turns to draw near. And God says, Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God was present there, and the land was holy. And so it was a serious threat to Moses. He dare not come any closer. And this theme of God's holiness and the requirement for his people to be holy, to be in his presence, to dwell with him, is going to be repeated again and again in the coming chapters of Exodus. But here in this passage, it's the reason why the Israelites are in danger of destruction themselves. Now this might be really hard for us to grasp because we really can hardly fathom something as holy as God. And everything in our world is corrupted in some way. Broken. Sinful. I mean, just try and think of the holiest thing you can think of besides God. What comes to mind? For me, I think of pristine wilderness. I love going up to the Boundary Waters canoe area with my dad and my brothers and now my sons. It's just beautiful. Sometimes if you're really out there, you you won't see another person the whole day. There's no houses out there. There's no cars, right? Maybe a plane every now and then. It's wonderful. It's pristine. Perhaps uh, the innocence of a baby comes to mind when you think of holiness. Or maybe for some, not me, but maybe the image of a principal's office or a courtroom. You know, places representing authority, where respect is expected. A dress code and decorum is to be observed. Tomfoolery is not tolerated in these places. But we cannot really begin to fathom something so holy that even our very presence is offensive to it, warranting death. And that is part of the point of this passage and much of what is to come in Exodus. We vastly underappreciate the holiness of God, the awesomeness and the severity of his perfection. And we vastly underappreciate our own need to be made holy. The horror of this plague displays the harsh reality of God's judgment. I mean, this night will be the most horrific night in the history of Egypt. As we read in the end, the weeping will be unbearable. Cries throughout the whole land. The plagues that had already happened were severe enough, but this is an entirely more profound level of suffering and sorrow. And it points to the reality of God's holiness. Though some may still take issue with a God who judges 
so harshly, we can maybe understand his actions, again, when we think of Egypt, like they're deserving of this. They've been killing the innocent children of Israel. They've been giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to relent, and they won't. Something has to happen to stop that. It's harder for us to grasp why Israel, Israel was also in danger of destruction. And we'd be left to wonder this, except that throughout Exodus, God is making himself known as a holy God who will judge all unholiness. And like the Egyptians, whether well off like Pharaoh who sits on the throne or like the poor slave girl who's in the dungeon, the Israelites are also unholy people. And when God himself comes down in their midst, they will be in danger of judgment. And that is the problem that the Passover meal is addressing for the Jews. Their unholiness will be revealed and judged in the presence of a holy God. But how does the blood of a Passover lamb do anything about that, right? I mean, if God's holiness is so severe, what does this little bit of blood do? On the screen, there's going to be a picture of a classroom, I think. It's coming up. Here we go. This isn't from the good old days when prayer was allowed in schools. My uh, dad retells these stories to my children. Grew up in the Cold War era, right? And they would have atomic bomb drills. In case a bomb was detonated near their town, they were to go and hide under their desks for cover, right? And everyone who's retold these kinds of stories to me, they all chuckle and say, like, this is ridiculous. Like, there's nothing that this is going to do in the event of atomic bomb, right? Similar thing. What is this little daub of blood over the doorpost going to do if God is so holy and we are so unholy in his presence? How does it satisfy God's wrath? Well, this point is going to be made clear as we continue going along in Exodus. But the lamb's blood accomplishes this because it takes the place of the firstborn in the family. It's a substitute for them. One commentary noted it this way. It says, When morning came in Egypt after the night of the plague, a death had, had occurred indeed in every home, in Egypt and in Goshen. The only question is, was it a lamb or a human? If the blood were simply marking out Israelite homes, then red paint would have done the job. But the blood is a sign that a sacrifice has been made, that a substitute has been offered. A life will be required of the Jews. God's holiness and justice demands it. But God isn't just a God who judges. He is also a God who saves. God doesn't just leave Israel without a defense, without hope. He provides a way to address their unholiness. And it still will require a death, but not the death of one of their own children. It will not require their own blood. And by acting on these instructions that he gives them, the Jews signified their faith in that provision. They appropriated it through faith. The book of Hebrews attests to this in chapter 11. The author of Hebrews is recounting 
the heroes of the faith of Israel. And he gets to Moses. And there's several things that Moses has done that is attributed to him by faith. And he says in verses 23 to 29, my faith, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He's referring to Christ. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. It's an act of faith. The redemption provided by the slaughtered lamb was appropriated by God's people through their faith that their obedience would accomplish what God had said. Let me say that again. It wasn't, they weren't being rescued by their obedience. They were being rescued in their faith that by doing that, God would honor what he said he would do and he would pass over them. So God makes himself known as a holy God who judges, but also a God who saves. And he provides this way for the Israelites to withstand his presence. And at the beginning, I said there was three unique things about this plague. That God himself would come to carry it out. That Israel would have to take action to avoid it. And the third thing was that the flow of the plot narrative would be, was interrupted in order to establish memorial ceremony. Let me unpack that a little bit more. So I'm making the case that the author here in Exodus and that God foresaw something else that was going to come and was trying to get their attention here so that when that thing would come, they would realize what it was. When reading biblical narrative like this, it's important to give attention to the standard elements of storytelling like you would in English class. You know, plot, characters, climax, pacing, these kinds of things. The authors use them to convey meaning and emphasis. And the human authors of the Bible, under the divine inspiration of God, utilize these tools as well. And at the start of the passage, the tension in the story had been rising steadily over nine plagues, increasing in severity. And each plague followed a similar format of dialogue between the same characters. God would tell Moses and Aaron to warn Pharaoh of what would happen, and if he didn't, um, then Moses and Aaron would enact the plague. Then Pharaoh would confront Moses and Aaron and ask them to plead with God to relent of the plague. And then the cycle would continue. The dialogue is between the Lord, Moses and Aaron, and Pharaoh. And at the start of chapter 11, it seems that this pattern is going to be repeated. Except when we get to chapter 12, and it doesn't. I mean, literally just before the climax of this story, and they get to the exodus moment, and the, the, the freeing of Israel from Egyptian slavery, right when the tension is near its highest, the author and God pauses and directs a message through Moses and Aaron not to Pharaoh but to the people of Israel something that he hasn't done since chapter 6 since before the plagues even began and the author breaks down or breaks from the standard plot inserts this detailed interlude about a memorial feast a feast that's going to be reenacted yearly for generations to come forever even he's doing this intentionally to convey the importance and the significance of this event. 
God is establishing a new thing. As we read, let me find the passage here. Um, It's in chapter 12. The Lord says, said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So their whole calendar system is going to change with this. But then he goes on to say, chapter 12, verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. God wants them to pay attention to this, to see that a new thing is happening. Their entire lives are going to be reoriented around this feast. But he orders them to repeat it over and over and over again, I believe, because when the true fulfillment of this comes, he wants them to see that thing that it is pointing to. This is a thing that God has already been developing throughout Scripture. It's there immediately after the very first sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, they realize their shame and nakedness and they try to hide from God. Unholy people in the presence of a holy God. And what does God do? He makes clothes for them. He covers their nakedness and their shame. And he makes the clothes not out of leaves or plants. That's what we often see in the Adam and Eve pictures in the garden. But he makes them out of animal skin. Which means a death had to occur. An animal had to be sacrificed. And a spotless animal. Because there was nothing to blemish any animals in the garden at that time. And then the theme continues. After the great flood, Noah made a sacrifice from the clean animals that had come aboard. And then later, God provided a ram to take the place of Abraham's favored son, Isaac. So God's developing this theme. And back at the time of Exodus, God's drawing even greater attention to it, directing the Israelites to not forget to reenact it every year for their entire lives to be reoriented around this. He's not done revealing the full meaning and significance of this Passover. And he wanted to keep it before themselves so they wouldn't miss it. Now, 400 years later from this event, Israel finds themselves in foreign captivity again, now in Babylon. And the theme is developed yet again through the prophet Isaiah. It says in chapter 53 of Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah who's going to come, who's going to not just free them from geopolitical oppression, but from their sins. And it's going to be a man, a human. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the Lord shall prosper him in his hand. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the theme is move not just an animal lamb, but the Messiah is going to be a human, a man who is going to come. Another 400 years approximately pass. Guess what? Israel, again, under foreign occupation, this time Rome. And the firstborn of a mother, and the firstborn, the only begotten of his heavenly father, enters the world. And when he grew up, John the Baptist saw him walking and proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one evening, Jesus, a few years later, was sitting down with his disciples, and they were celebrating this Passover feast. And he instituted the full meaning of the feast. A meal that was first simply pointing, that was pointing to him all along, and he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat. And he poured a cup of wine and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you take this bread and drink this cup, you do this in remembrance of me, for you proclaim my death until I return. And they finished that feast, and he went out and walked to face his accusers and to face the most imaginable horrific sacrifice in the history of the world. The Messiah did the unthinkable. And though he was completely holy, without spot or blemish, he willingly allowed himself to be slaughtered and hung up on a cross for all to see, including God. And God saw his blood and his sacrifice, and his wrath was satisfied. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, we read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. People of Christ's community, this is our God. This is the God who is revealing himself to us, who's making himself known to us as both the just and the justifier, the God who judges and the God who saves. That's who he was back in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what he, who he was back in Egypt. And that who, is who he is today. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, and just like the Jews and the Egyptians in Egypt, we too are in need of being justified, of being saved before the presence of a holy God. And just like the sacrifice of that lamb was appropriated by faith, by each Jewish home when they trusted God's command and smeared the blood on their door, trusting that it would protect them 
from God's instruction, so we too can, through faith, appropriate the blood of Jesus over our lives. So all I have to do to be saved is believe. I mean, people ask Christians that all the time. Like, that's it? You just say that's all I have to do is believe. Yes, that's all you have to do is believe. John 3, 16, it says it so clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Do not put your trust in the gods of Egypt in this world. Do not think you will be safe when the Holy God comes in the fullness of his presence, in the fullness of time. Do not think that you can make yourself holy through your own works, your own sweat and blood. For you who have already been redeemed through your faith by the blood of the Lamb, let's consider how we should respond like the Jews did in this passage. The very end, chapter 12, verses 26 to 27, we read, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service, by this feast? You shall say, It is the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So two things. Tell someone about what the Lord has done for you. Tell them about the Lord who is both judge and justifier. The God who judges and the God who saves. Perhaps God is putting someone on your mind and your heart right now. Tell them. Don't delay. They need to hear that. This sacrifice is for them as much as anyone else. Parents, Tell your children, even today during communion, what is the meaning of this meal? What are we, why are we doing this week after week? Why do we dip the bread and, and the juice? Let them know the significance of, of it to you in hopes that they will come to put their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus as well. And we're going to take communion in a moment together. And after we do, we'll bow our heads and we will worship. We will sing with joy to the Lord who is our Passover lamb. Let's pray. God in heaven, what an amazing gift. What an amazing God you are. We have seen your power, your supreme authority over all things And we see your great holiness. Lord, how amazing it is then that you condescended and sent your son in human form to take our place. A gift that we never deserved, 
that we can never earn, Lord. Help us to rest in the peace that you provide through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And we pray for those who do not know this yet. We pray for Israel, the Jews who are still looking for the Messiah, who are still trusting in the sacrifice of lambs and goats to atone for their sins, Lord. We pray that you would not only rescue them from recurring geopolitical oppression, but most importantly, from the wrath of you, your holiness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.